Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hello, everyone. Happy to have you. Welcome to episode three of the Reframers. I am Erin. And I'm Zach. And today we're going to be talking about drugs. Yeah, so this one is going to be not so much reframing because uh, in our prep for this episode, we didn't really find a lot of information on like what the founders thought about drugs. It just seemed like it was a non-issue. So this week's episode is going to be kind of just a little brief history, and then we're going to you know let loose and wander wherever we want to wander in realms of drugs in the U.S. and drug policy and stuff like that today. Yep, should be fun. So when you're talking about drugs in the United States, the first thing that you really end up talking about is prohibition, which prohibition is basically repeals of alcohol, drugs. It can be other kinds of substances. It basically just means controlling the sale, manufacture, and consumption of particular goods. So this all started with prohibition of alcohol. And early prohibition laws actually date back to the early 1800s. Massachusetts had a law uh, banning the sale of spirits in less than 15-gallon quantities. That was repealed two years later. Uh, Maine also passed a prohibition law in 1846, and there were several other early state um, prohibition laws in the 1850s. But the big prohibition that everybody knows about is the prohibition of alcohol that happened in the 1900s. So this was in 1920, and that was the 18th Amendment, which was a prohibition on alcohol. That amendment famously was overturned by the 21st Amendment in 1933, and widely seen as one of the big mistakes of amending the Constitution. It was really a total failure, and there's lots of things that came from prohibition uh, that I think we're going to talk about a little bit, because some of those things also apply to drugs today. Zach, did you want to uh, say anything else about prohibition? Yeah, just that in, in my prep for this episode, I saw mostly people and, and sources saying prohibition was pretty much a, an abysmal failure. Somebody tried to justify prohibition and say, well, it did reduce alcohol consumption at its best. Americans consumed 30% less alcohol than they did before Prohibition was enacted, but considering the costs associated with prohibition, such as the decreased tax revenue that the federal government brought in from taxing alcohol, despite the loopholes that were created for people that basically they said, oh, we can't sell alcohol anymore, but if you're a pharmacist, you can sell whiskey as a medical, air quotes, medical solution. So there was all of those things. And then You know, thousands of, uh, I think it says on average, a thousand Americans died every year during Prohibition because of side effects from drinking tainted liquor. You know, if you wanted to try to claim we brought alcohol consumption down 30%, all the other side effects of that were largely outweighing that marginal benefit. So just to take it back a little bit, can I maybe get a definition of the Prohibition Amendment? Give me an idea of what what was laid out, what was the intent, and why it didn't work. So I can give you a little bit of background on where it came from. So the Women's Christian Temperance Movement was the big organization that had this push for the 18th Amendment, although it was widely supported. Uh, We've mentioned before, it takes three-fourths of the states and three-fourths of both houses of Congress to add an amendment to the Constitution. This amendment was passed in only 11 months. You know, so it had really big widespread support. Some of the reasons uh, that the women's Christian temperance movement gave for this amendment was to decrease just drunkenness in general, to address domestic abuse. There were factory owners who also supported it because they thought that it would help prevent more accidents and increase efficiency. This is during the time we had lots of factories and more industrial development. Um, And so there was also this extension of working hours, that kind of things. They thought that having prohibition would also help workers 
you know, be better workers. So there are lots of reasons that seem reasonable why people wanted this amendment. Unfortunately, it basically didn't stop people from drinking and just created a market for speakeasies, for bootleggers, for all of these people to just sell alcohol illegally and also greatly increased crime in the country and led to some of the biggest gangs. So Al Capone, he's, you know, someone who came out of this prohibition movement and all of those that rise in gangs and gay violence is one of the reasons why the federal government made a push to have the 21st Amendment repeal the 18th Amendment 13 years later. And uh, one of the platforms that uh, FDR ran on when he ran against Hoover was to get rid of prohibition. Yeah, there was a pretty much very correlational spike between when alcohol was outlawed so the passage of the 18th amendment you started to see murders and and crime go up and then once the 21st amendment was passed to repeal prohibition you saw that that rate decline so there's a lot of negative side effects associated with it so so where does it stand today um you know what's obviously drugs are legal we know that um there's a big difference right because federally there's drugs are illegal uh, however, there are several states that have different laws in place for marijuana. You know, that, that seems like every year more and more states are passing or at least um, decriminalizing marijuana. So what's the, the current state of drug law today in the United States? Well, to give a little bit of background on drug law as opposed to alcohol law, as we know now, alcohol is not prohibited. There's still alcohol laws, like in some states you can't sell alcohol on Sundays or can't buy alcohol after midnight. I know this is true in Virginia because I have tried to buy a beer at a bar after midnight and I wasn't able to do that because everything was closed, including grocery stores, which can sell alcohol after midnight. That's the only one I know is I know in other states, people have said they have to go to a liquor store to buy liquor and not mm-hmm. to the Safeway down the street, which is wild as a Californian, but was normal for them. Right. And then there's some laws about how you can ship alcohol across state lines, that kind of thing. You have to have a liquor license to be able to sell alcohol. So there's still you know restrictions on alcohol, but obviously not the same kind of prohibition. With drugs, it's a little bit different. It's much more highly regulated. There's a lot more drugs that are just fully illegal. So the first restrictions, surprisingly, weren't until the early 1900s. Before that, even really hardcore drugs that we think about, like cocaine and heroin, were legal under federal and almost all state laws. And in 1906, uh, there was the first big legislation that addressed this. It was the Pure Food and Drug Act. It labeled some substances as addictive and dangerous, and it restricted the sale of them. And that included cannabis and morphine and cocaine and heroin. That was the first really big legislation about drugs. In 1914, there was the Harrison Narcotics Act, and that regulated the market for opioids. But the really big recent ones are in the 1970s. Um, This is started with Nixon. Nixon was the first president who declared a war on drugs. It sort of carried through to Reagan and Bush later on. But in 1970, Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. And this is the act that really set the stage for regulation and uh, prohibition. And it also created the new enforcement agency that we know today, which is the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA. The DEA obviously is still alive and well today. It's very powerful and very active in regulating and monitoring and uh, persecuting or prosecuting drug crimes. Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the kind colloquially referred to as the Controlled Substances Act, right? So that's where the government set the classifications. There's Schedule 1 through Schedule 5, which are basically just uh, different classifications of here are the different types of drugs or substances that we're going to now effectively regulate. So Schedule 1 is the most severe with the high potential for abuse and no medical use, down to Schedule 5, which is like the lowest potential for abuse, and there are accepted medical uses. And so this is kind of where it stands today in terms of what the federal government classifies as a drug and how severely the punishments or 
laws are relating to each substance. Yep, I think that's right. And you may have seen, kind of like Zach mentioned in the beginning, states can are choosing to regulate drugs differently now. Like obviously California, Washington, Nevada, many other states now have decriminalized marijuana. And so you're allowed to have marijuana and you're not going to be breaking any laws under the state laws, but it's still legal federally. So there's, you know, this issue of federalism going on where if the president, this is really sort of an executive action kind of thing. If the president decided that he or she really wanted to crack down on drugs, specifically marijuana, something like that, uh, they'd be able to go to these states where you know marijuana is legal and federally prosecute people under the federal law for producing and selling and using marijuana. They wanted to because that law is still in place on a federal level. Aaron said a lot of the states are decriminalizing marijuana, which just so people in the audience can have the context, decriminalization is when a drug and the possession of the drug are decriminalized, meaning the criminal charges are not going to be applied versus legalization, which is removes all the penalties for possession and use of the drug. So it's a little bit of a distinction there between the two and most of the states, if I'm correct, are decriminalizing marijuana, which is under the federal classification still a schedule one narcotic, which is the most severe in the same as methamphetamine and other very you know dangerous drugs so that's kind of where it stands today in terms of the federal and the state relationship Mm -hmm. and another thing i think that's important to mention about schedule one drugs is that if you want to study them as a researcher or you know at a at a university something like that you want to study the effects of them you have to get special permission from the government to be able to do that. So we do have research on these drugs, on their addictiveness and that kind of thing. You can't just do a study when they're classified in this really highly restrictive way. You also have to get these sort of special permissions to be able to study them. And this is one of the reasons why people really don't understand why marijuana is classified in the same category as like meth or or heroin, because, you know, we just know it doesn't have the same addictive effects or or just health effects as those other drugs but it's that's where it's been classified you know going back in time and there hasn't been enough appetite in congress at least on a federal level to change that yeah and that i mean if you want a a deeper dive on marijuana history i know there's plenty of other resources out there we are not the experts in terms of marijuana legal history and all of that but the fact that it says that it's a schedule one, the federal government says it's a schedule one, and that there are no accepted medical uses for marijuana is just bananas. Um, that's totally bonkers. And it just seems so backwards in 2021. I just pulled up something, the 2018 uh, National Drug Assessment from the DEA. Drug poisoning deaths are the leading cause of injury in the United States. They are currently at their highest level ever recorded. And every year since 2011, have outnumbered deaths by firearms, motor vehicles, crashes, suicide, and homicide. In 2016, approximately 174 people die every day from drug poisoning. The opioid threat, controlled prescription drugs, synthetic opioids, and heroin has reached epidemic levels and currently shows no sign of abating. Meanwhile, as the ongoing opioid crisis receives national attention, the methamphetamine threat remains prevalent. Cocaine threat has rebounded, New psychoactive substances are still challenging and the domestic marijuana situation continues to evolve. So from that assessment, uh, the United States is kind of effed in terms of its drug uh, use and, and the prevalence of drugs in the country. Definitely. I think that it, for me, looking into this, something that was really interesting was that the number of ODs and negative impacts from drugs just on, on people personally have increased since we had stronger drug laws since the 1970s, you've just had increases in OD-related deaths and also increases in drug-related diseases like hepatitis C. So, you know, this sort of follows the alcohol prohibition trend where there's all these really negative effects from outlawing drugs. And, you know, I think this is where we can talk about, right? Like, well, do we still need to outlaw drugs, even though there's these negative effects? Like what sort of outlaws make sense? Um, what don't today? I think, you know, you mentioned marijuana. 
you know, we live, like we said, we say all the time, we live in California. And so marijuana is like literally everywhere. You know, I, I live in San Francisco. So there's like four dispensaries, like two blocks away from me. They're everywhere. So it seems really crazy to me that marijuana is still not legal federally, especially when there are so many states that have decriminalized it and that it is used for medicinal purposes. Lots of people use it for medicinal purposes. More people think that alcohol is more dangerous than marijuana is. And I I think you can make a pretty good argument for alcohol being more dangerous than marijuana. And yet, you know, alcohol is just widespread and it's, you know, we, we have no issue with alcohol being legal. And yet there's still these issues with marijuana being legal. And I think we're in probably a little bit of a bubble where we think that this is just totally widespread and everything, everyone thinks this way. I do think marijuana is like moving in the direction where fewer people think it is as big, a big deal. But, I, you know, there's still people who think of it very much as this like gateway drug into hardcore drugs and that it really does need to be illegal still. I, I think that line of thinking is probably getting less prevalent, but I, I don't want to discount it entirely just because we live in a place where you know, that's really not in the social uh, conversation at all. Yeah, I totally agree with, with all that you just said. Um, so what what is your stance on drugs? Like, is the war on drugs a good thing, Aaron? I think it's hard a little bit because I don't like the idea of something that's like really hardcore, like meth or heroin being legal. But at the same time, I mean, you just look at the effects of what the war on drugs has done. And I think it becomes harder to just make a really strong argument for big prosecution of drug crimes. I think specifically for me, something that I really, really, really don't like about this is just the effects that it's had on minority populations. So black uh, and Hispanic people are more likely to be arrested for drug crimes and raided by police than white people, even though the groups use and sell drugs at similar rates. So that's from the new Jim Crow, really popular book by Michelle Alexander about drug policies basically being used as oppression for these minority groups. You know, you can see that also in incarceration rates and arrest rates. It's just way, way higher for these minority populations. And there isn't, you know, they've done studies of saying that it's not like these populations are using drugs to this degree that's way higher than white people, but they do get prosecuted way more. And I think for me, when we're talking about the war on drugs, that's the biggest issue. It has real world consequences, even in things like voting, because if you're incarcerated in many states, you're not allowed to vote. Some states don't even let convicted felons vote. And so, and when the population is so much higher of African-Americans, then you're disenfranchising a huge minority population, even for something like voting. And so, you know, for me, that has been like a huge negative effect. And then also the rise in crime or in the late 1800s to the 1930s, there was Chinese gangs selling opium. And then in Prohibition, there were the, you know, gangs selling alcohol with Capone. Modern day, we have drug cartels. The specific ones that affect the United States really strongly are in Mexico and Colombia and some other Latin American countries. And so it just seems to perpetuate these crime cycles. You can trace a lot of that to, to this, or this uh, drug legislation. Yeah, I completely agree, actually. I, I think I'm pretty libertarian in my view on this. I don't like the idea of people using drugs. Like, I don't think that that's a net positive for society. I don't think that, that makes us a better citizenry. But I don't see how you can look at the numbers. And this policy has been in, a, in an effect for 40, almost 50 years at this point. So where's the benefits? We've spent, I, I think the statistic is something like we spend $40 billion a year on the war on drugs, as a rough estimate, that's a lot of money. And I saw 51 billion was the number that I saw. So my, my figure is probably outdated. I don't see how we can do that, spend that much money. And yet from what I read earlier, the amount of people dying every year from drugs is higher than it's ever been year over year. And to your point about the minorities and, and the people that are in prison for this, I found a great article that had a lot of great graphics. I, I'm finding out as I do this podcast, I'm a visual 
learner. Graphs and charts are like super great for me. So there's a, a piece at the prisonpolicy.org that went through and broke down how many people in 2020 are incarcerated in like local jail, state prison, and federal prisons. And it's just incredible. Um, the drug offenses in all three prison systems account for almost half a million people. And still the police make over 1 million drug arrests each year, many of which lead to prison sentences. And so for me, getting back to my stance on this, I don't see why the government should penalize somebody for you know, nonviolent drug use. It just, to me, doesn't make sense. Now, that's not to say all drugs should just be okay. You know, if you kill somebody or you get behind the wheel while you're intoxicated, like that still is, should be criminal. But if you're in your house and you're, you know, smoking marijuana or something else, how is that different than getting drunk in your house by yourself? Like it, the logic is inconsistent to me and the policy ramifications are so detrimental without me seeing any benefit that it's like, I don't see how we can continue to justify this current policy. Yeah, I agree. Another thing that I saw that I didn't, I hadn't thought of before is that prosecuting drug crime and investigating drug crime has also led to more militarization of police because their, you know, local and state police departments are enforcing these federal drug laws, which is sort of an interesting, like, blending of federalism here, because normally they'd be just enforcing state laws. Um, but they request more sort of military level resources from the federal government, and they're using basically military level equipment against citizens and also putting this idea, you know, when you use terminology like the war on drugs, you're putting these police departments into this idea of they're in a war against other citizens, you know, other people who are participating in their society. And so I think that that just increases tensions as well between police departments and citizens. And it really should be more of a partnership, but it's really become this very toxic issue between, I think, police and citizens. And that goes into lots of other issues. But I think, you know, these issues with drugs has exacerbated and also I think has been the origin of a lot of that tension because, you know, where, where are these arrests coming from? A lot of them are coming from targeting for drug crimes, targeting certain neighborhoods and like uh, stop and frisk in New York, we know that the police targeted minority populations more than white people. And it's just thing after thing after thing when we're talking about drugs. And I agree with you, Zach. I think that it's just really hard to find any net positive from <laughs> these laws. And so even though like, I don't know, kind of like I said, I don't love the idea of just being like, yes, all of these like really intense drugs are can be legal. And I think that, yeah, maybe that would encourage some more people to try like hardcore drugs if they're buying it from a store and not from some back alley seller. Even if that is the case, then at least you don't get these like tainted drugs or really, really strong um, percentages of the like hallucinogens or other things like that. Like drugs actually tend to be a lot stronger and more potent because when they're legal or illegal, you have to justify like buying them more and they become more expensive. I mean, there's just like effect after effect after effect. So I don't love the idea of there just being all these legal drugs, but it's just the alternative is not working and it's, and it hasn't worked. And we like know for a fact it hasn't worked. Yeah. How much more data do you need? Like is 50 years not enough? Like that's <laughs> what, what more proof do you need? And, and I, I had on my notes list too, for this discussion was the abuse of police power not even the potential for abuse. Like you don't even have to make the argument that, oh, it could lead to abuses. It already has. I have a book that I, I listen to, it's an audible book, but it's um, from Judge Andrew Napolitano. And I've only listened to this chapter, but it was his you know chapter on the war on drugs. And he quotes a, a Yale law professor, Stephen Duke, who says, a search based on an invalid warrant does not require any remedy so long as the police acted in good faith. As long as the police say they have a pretense to say, oh, well, I think he had drugs. You, you don't have to use your imagination very much to see how that's a, a pretty bad way to hold the police and our judicial system accountable. It's like, oh, as long as they thought they were doing the right thing, then it's okay. Like that's not a very strong argument to me. 
that this is an effective policy. And, and he also talks about the no knock rates, right? Where people come in, they say, oh, this person has drugs or selling drugs or possession or whatever. And you don't have to look very hard to see times where they hit the wrong house, you know, and they detain people that have no drugs or never used drugs or anything like that. So I'm, and I'm a supporter of the police I in, in general, but I think that there's just, with all the mistakes that have been made, with the misdirection of funds, with the misdirection of force, when it's in costing you to not do something. Uh, I can't help you. I'm sorry. I don't the, know. <laughs> the opportunity cost. The opportunity cost. Okay, right? yes, yes, you so, found it. Good job. <laughs> thank you. The opportunity cost of arresting and, and detaining a huge portion of our, our population every year that puts them in this cycle of, well, now they have a, a criminal record for nonviolent drug use. So now they, if they seek employment after they get out, employers are less likely to hire them, which means that they're less likely to, be able to provide for their families, which means that they're more likely to stay in poverty or below the poverty line, which means that they're more likely to probably turn to drugs or selling drugs as an alternative form of making money. Like the cycle isn't very hard to, to predict what the next stages are. And to your point, just like in prohibition, it creates a black market. And so that leads to gangs. It leads to control of the market through these gangs in Mexico and, and other places. And it's like, what if we try a different approach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that one of the harder questions when you're talking about drugs, and I, I actually just need to look into this a little bit further, is abuse of opioids, legal opioids that people that you get prescribed, you know, this is a really big deal. And as like an anecdotal example, I got my wisdom teeth out a couple months ago, which I'm like almost 30. You should definitely get your wisdom teeth out before this to plug this. If you're 18 and wondering about it, just do it and grit your teeth. It was terrible. What they gave me when I went home was two different pill bottles. One of them was this like super potent ibuprofen. It was like 600 milligrams per pill or something. That stuff was great. I used a lot of that and that's good too because it's anti-inflammatory. But then they also gave me a full bottle of oxycodone. And it was, I think they gave me like 25 pills of it or something. And I, I took two of them over the recovery course just on the two nights where I was in a lot of pain. And it was, and you know, one on one night, one on the other night. But they had told me, you know, when I came in, if you want to take like one of these every four hours, you know, like that's okay. That's the amount that you could. But now I just have this pretty much full bottle of oxycodone just sitting in my cabinet. And, you know, I'm lucky that it's just wisdom teeth and I didn't really need to take it. But like, this is how people become addicted to these drugs. And then when you run out of the prescription, that's when people turn to the harder core stuff like heroin or something like that. So... Aaron, lucky for you, I can give you a little bit of backstory on this um, Great. And, and maybe save you a night of research. So I'm surprised it took 30 minutes into the pod for me to bring this book up, but it's one of my probably most useful books that I've, I've ever had the pleasure to read. It's called Dreamland by Sam Kionis. And basically the book talks about exactly what you were bringing up, that it details the rise both of legal prescription opioids and also, you know, heroin, black tar heroin specifically. And it creates this parallel narrative in the book. The book basically details how you have these two movements that, that happen in, in the United States through big pharma and also through Mexican drug cartels, where you have this movement in the medical industry where you started to have this one study that said opioids can be an effective and non-addictive painkiller when used under the, you know, the care of a, a trained physician, something like that. And the study was like 14 people for two or three weeks. Like it was a very small sample size and a very short duration. And they found, great, these things are, are non-addictive non and are super effective in, in pain management. So they're great for after surgeries. And that study got cited and recited and recited where it became, you know, myth. It became this like holy grail of, of medical studies and became widely accepted. So then you start to have hospitals asking their patients on a scale of you know one to 10, how much pain are you in? 
pain is obviously very subjective, right? If you get a boo-boo on your finger and you're like, man, that hurt in the moment that you got the boo-boo, you know, maybe it's a seven because nothing else on your body hurts, but you know, somebody can get shot in war and they're fine. So they started asking people, how much pain are you in? And at the same time, you have this pillar of medicine as pain that's very subjective. You also have the like franchisement of drugs being imported into the country where you would have these cartels and these, um, these gangs in Mexico where the story is a good job of making it so these people are trying to earn a living in their town. They don't have money. They're very impoverished. They can go to the United States and they can sell drugs in these like basically franchise. They go to Miami, they go to Denver, they go to San Francisco, they go to LA and they buy a used car, they pay in cash. And then they basically say, we know the drug law in the country. So you're gonna carry less than this much. You're gonna treat your clients nice. And basically you're gonna be like a, a pizza delivery for black tar heroin. And so you have these, these two kind of things rising at the same time. And when people couldn't get their prescription opioids anymore, now you have this rampant black tar heroin that was you know readily available anywhere you look and vice versa. So that book does a really great job of detailing the, the opioid epidemic and how it got to the state that we're at. They say fentanyl, which is a, a big drug that's focused on in the book, is a drug 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. Uh, the Heritage Foundation reports that fentanyl is now the leading cause of overdose death in the United States. Overdoses claimed almost 100,000 lives in 2017 and 2018. Uh, for comparison, those numbers rival the peak of the AIDS crisis in 1995, according to the RAND Corporation. As far as I know, there's nothing to be done in place where these, you know, fentanyl, oxycontin, etc., are, you know, we're not doing anything to rein back their prescription. Like you said, you got 25 pills for a wisdom teeth surgery. The potential for abuse there is just outrageous. Because these these drugs are legal, right? And they're not mm -hmm. just legal, they're prescribed by, by physicians. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this is the scary flip side of, oh, you know, we make drugs legal. What are the effects of that? Because we don't know the effects of that either. You know, we know it for alcohol a little bit, but, you know, a lot of these drugs are like way more destructive than alcohol. Some of them are not, you know, there's alcoholism and there's lots of deaths from alcoholism as well. I mean, that's a huge problem, but yeah, the, the opioid epidemic, it's like this huge thing that everyone kind of knows about. I mean, know it's a problem, but it seems like, you know, we're not really doing anything about it. And there's been great increases in, uh, they're called deaths of despair are, uh, and a, a category of death despair are uh, ODs. It also includes things like suicide. But there's been increases in these sorts of deaths as well. And a lot of that is due to these opioid addictions. And so I think that th there's a question here of like, okay, well, how do we treat pain in a way where we don't get people addicted to these drugs? And you see, it seems like that wouldn't be that hard, that there would be a way to work around that. But for some reason, you know, I'm still being prescribed 25 pills for my wisdom teeth surgery. And like you said, you know, there's issues with pain, like as a subjective measure, like we know that certain populations actually have to be in more pain to get prescribed uh, medication or for people to believe that you're in more pain. For example, uh, women tend to, there's inherent biases where doctors can tend to think that women are being emotional. So like women are misdiagnosed with heart attacks more often than men. And also with uh, minority populations, there's this bias of, oh, you know, maybe they just want drugs. And so they actually have to be in more pain to be prescribed drugs. So like those, all of those biases are part of this pain issue. And that, even that aside though, is, well, what do we do about this opioid epidemic? But big pharma also has, you know, these big lobbying interests and they're very much involved in politics. And so it's yet another one of these things where we've mentioned lobbying before, where we have, we, Zach and I, I think both have issues with lobbying just in general, but specifically when you have this, when you have an epidemic that is like actually really, really hurting people on a public health level and impacting our society, I think it becomes a really hard question of well, what do we do about drugs and what do we do about treating pain? And I mean, like neither of us are doctors. I think you sort of need to be a doctor to, to speak on this with 
authority and, 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 uh, knowledge, but we can look at it and identify like, this is a huge issue and like, we need to deal with it. And it's very much not the top issue when you're thinking about like the presidential elections or, or Senator elections, it's sort of there, like, oh, we need to deal with this. But like the bigger issues are, you know, like, oh, do we want like universal healthcare or, what's going on with, you know, we need to like really deal with clean energy. And I think those are important issues, but kind of like you said, like when you're talking about drugs and just in general, it touches all of these other issues. And I think that we're not addressing it and we're not seeing the connection that it has across society. And it really needs a lot more attention. I totally agree, Aaron. And, and, and to be fair, the, the book, you know, it's, it's not studying, you know, inner city, you know, minority drug users. The book is set, Dreamland was the name of a pool in like rural Ohio. It's like a very like white suburban population where minorities were segregated and, and kept out of the, the pool for some time until like a, a young black boy drowns in the river. And they're like, oh shoot, maybe we should like not keep the pool whites only. And to your point where you have, you know, all these things that are very loud topics in the national conversation that... Yeah, they're interesting to talk about. And I think we could, you know, have a good discussion on, you know, climate policy and, and is the Green New Deal actually a good thing for the United States or is it a bad thing? Like we could we can go into that. I'm, I'm happy to do that. But when you have 100,000 Americans dying every year, suddenly I don't care about the Green New Deal as much as I do about that's 100,000 people that are leaving families behind. Like you said, we're not doctors. I know that these drugs can be effective in treating you know, people's pain and their recovery. So it's, I'm not saying that the drug should be illegal, but maybe we want to take a step back and revisit, are we using them in an effective way? You know, maybe there can be research done to detect pain in the body, right? Maybe you come in and you do a brain scan rather than being a subjective measure of, oh, hey, how's your back doing today? Oh, it still hurts, doc. You know, wink, wink, I just want some more drugs versus like looking at a brain scan to see, what pain triggers are being fired in my brain. We can develop and innovate to be more effective and we're just not doing it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, even on like, I went back to it just cause it's my example, but with the wisdom teeth, I had this like extra strength ibuprofen. It's not addictive in the same way oxycodone is and it totally works. So it's like, well, why are there, are there other alternatives that we're not looking at. And, you know, this is a good example of medical marijuana too. We know that marijuana is not as addictive as some of these opioids and that it can actually be an effective painkiller for certain things. You know, it's also not as strong. So <laughs> you may have to adjust it a little bit or look into the formulas, but it's like, the, why are we, it feels arbitrary the way that we've decided which drugs are okay and which ones to use medicinally and which ones aren't. And it almost, it just goes back to this, old legislation. And, you know, I, it seems like we should just be doing more research on this and thinking about thinking more carefully about what makes sense. But I think at this point, it's so ingrained, there's so much money involved. And now there's potentially interests to actually keep drugs illegal because of all of these cartels. I think that's hopefully, I hope that's less true in the United States. But in some countries, you know, the, the bribery is out of control in terms of the, the cartels bribing elected officials to basically keep the system going, because if it's illegal, you don't have the same incentive. You know, it's, there's always going to be some illegal sale somewhere, probably, right? Like that's just, it, it's going to happen. But, you know, you could control for a lot of this. This is really different, but I, I just think there's so many different conversations that you can have about drugs. And something that um, I talked about recently with one of my friends was just the idea of microdosing, which kind of goes into this like recreational use of drugs. And I feel like it kind of connects this just because it makes me think of people who are really more well off and have just a better, I don't know, they just have better resources, better access to things. They can microdose with drugs that are still illegal, like LSD or other hallucinogens. and talk about it on podcasts. Like this is a Seth Rogen or Joe Rogan thing. Joe Rogan mm -hmm. is like obsessed with microdosing. So you get like these sort of people who go off and do that. And now there's like this huge culture of 
let's microdose LSD and like open our minds. And it's also being used in psychology, which, you know, maybe that's great. Like, I don't, I don't know because I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a doctor, but there's other uses for drugs too, that I think could be interesting. One of the things that uh, Judge Napolitano's book says is that basically like our war on drugs is something along the lines of a misguided Victorian view on morality, where the government is basically saying, here's what we think should be and should not be because of somebody's moral standard. And after all the discussion that we've had here, I don't see how to disagree with that. If you eliminate alcohol, just fictitiously if it disappeared, you would eliminate half the murders and assaults in the world because half the people that commit murder are drunk when they do it and half the victims of murders are drunk while when they're killed. I don't know that you know, marijuana does the same thing, right? How is marijuana still illegal when it probably has happened, but you don't have people getting high and going, and, you know, beating or killing their, their partner. So yeah, usually like, that's not the case. When people get like really high, it's like they want to hang out and watch movies and like philosophize about life. I had a gr- <laughs> some friends in uh, college that I actually got like really annoyed. They, I think they smoked too much weed, but they just like, wanted to sit around and smoke weed in the garage and like talk about life. And after a while, it's like, okay, this smells bad guys. I'm leaving. But you know, they, they were funny dudes and they just, they're not going out to do things. They didn't want to go do stuff. Um, and it's, I think you're right. It's different with alcohol, really different effects. Yeah. And, and I don't even think that that's, I, I knew friends like that in college and stuff. And I don't even think that that's a, a net good, right. I'm not advocating for people to like go and just dedicate their lives to marijuana use, but in terms of what we're talking about and making it you know, legal or decriminalizing on a federal level, in my opinion, all these different things that we've hit on just don't add up. And, yeah. and the last thing that at least that I have in my notes that we haven't talked about yet is what about like the CIA's involvement in bringing in drugs? I'm surprised it didn't come up earlier, but mm-hmm. there's a great movie that kind of encapsulates all of this. And it's called Kill the Messenger with Jeremy Renner. And that movie did such a good job because he was a uh, Gary Webb, I think, was is the character that he plays. And it's based off of real events that Gary Webb was a, a reporter for the San Jose Mercury News and broke this story about how the CIA was working with South American and other governments and, and groups to basically fly drugs in to the United States. And while we were fighting the war on drugs... On one hand, the government's saying drugs are bad. Here's five different classifications. You will go to jail if you possess or sell or use these weapons or their paraphernalia, by the way, not just the drug, but they've also created this whole subclass of drug paraphernalia. And then at the same time, our own government is shipping in the drugs and, you know, helping to distribute. Not necessarily, you know, there's a CIA guy in the corner being like, hey, do you want to buy some drugs? But flying them in under what under what world is that allowed like literally just like facilitating distribution it's that is insane i mean like that is something that's just like the corruption level on that and it's not even it's not like these people are being bribed or something this was this like strategic idea from the cia and i agree in what world do we think that that is like in any way okay you know that is just like out of control not right and you have to think there is other shady like that going on when it comes to drugs right like that's oh, a yeah. one story that got broke by one person like there's got to be more of that going on and so it does make you question a little bit i'm not trying to like sound conspiracy theorist about this but it's like well what are the other interests going on even in the u.s that are in favor of keeping drugs legal illegal yeah absolutely i mean i yeah i, I think that's a fair question i don't think it's conspiratorial when, whenever somebody has, you know, something like this, right? The CIA is flying in drugs. First time you hear that, you're like, come on. Like, are you kidding me? Don't be so ridiculous. But then this is a San Jose Mercury news reporter like 40 years ago. I don't remember exactly when, but I think it was in the 80s sometime. And as if that wasn't enough, right? Who, by the way, somehow died. I believe he shot himself in the head twice with a shotgun. I yeah. don't know how you do that because the logistics are very tough and I'll leave it at that. But as if as if his story wasn't enough as it is, 
there's a PBS Frontline interview or investigation where one of the uh, DEA field agent Hector Barella said, quote, I believe that elements working for the CIA were involved in bringing drugs into our country. I know specifically that some of the CIA contact workers, meaning some of the pilots, in fact, were bringing drugs into the U.S. and landing some of these drugs in government air bases. And I know so because I was told by some of the pilots that, in fact, they had done that. So it's like you don't even have to be conspiratorial. There's plenty of stuff on the record, public and published, that supports this. And it's like, how am I to trust a government that seems like it's setting up its own citizens for arrest and prosecution to enforce drug laws honestly and ethically? Like, I, you can't. Like, you lose all credibility. Absolutely. That one gets Cassie, me. Cassie, you want to weigh in? Tilted. Yeah, that one gets me upset. So somebody take it it's, away. <laughs> it's so, it's really upsetting. It's really upsetting. There's like no, no other way to say it. The way I see it, and you guys have touched on a lot of this, because this is obviously a really hard topic, right? There's elements of racism. There's elements of police abusing their power. There's conspiracy theories that might actually be true where our own government is doing shady things. There's medical organizations, big pharma, people making decisions either to cut corners and be quicker about things or to be malicious and make money off of people. It's a lot of categories, including recreationally, just should people be fined, penalized, criminalized, thrown in jail for just these little small categories. And I think putting them all in the same category, you guys have done a good job of talking about it because it's definitely not, they're not all the same and they're not created equal. And it does seem like sometimes that could be the problem because they're all, we're trying to solve many, many problems with one solution. Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. And I'm definitely a small government guy, but you know, Colorado is maybe one of the first States to, to, you know, legalize marijuana and mixed results, right? I mean, some people say, um, I found information that says that trips to the ER went up like threefold once they once they legalized marijuana, specifically because of like edibles, meaning you don't smoke it, but you know, you eat it in a, in a baked good or something like that. But then also like Colorado's generating tax revenue off that. And while I think that generally taxes, you know, the less the better, in my opinion, if you have something that's now not a black market item, you know, now there's competition, right? There's dispensaries, like you were saying, Aaron, in San Francisco, like now there's multiple people that are involved in a, like a legitimate economic enterprise with this, which means that if you sell bad weed, like people aren't going to buy your bad weed. They're going to go on Yelp. They're going to review your dispensary to say, this guy gives me weed that's psychedelic. It made me trip. It kind of now creates a legitimate economy that can regulate itself to some extent and the government can create or collect tax revenue from that. Um, well, yeah. And it's not, it's not even just that they might get bad reviews so that they, so people don't go there if they have bad product, you know, they're going to be regulated by state health laws. Mm-hmm. So they can't have things that are going to injure people. And if this ended up being becoming, you know, something that was legal federally, then it'd be regulated by the FDA who you can submit complaints if there's like problems with it. You can lose licenses, like all of this kind of stuff. It's, you know, that's why, you know, drug related illnesses or diseases and ODs have potentially, you know, like they have increased. And like one of the arguments is that like, there's no regulation of this stuff. Like that people can have like really bad batches and and be really injured because there's no quality control. Right. Right. It's just whatever gets you the best high. And so then there can be these issues. Yeah. What are you going to do? You overdose in a, in a bad way. Maybe you don't die, but you get sick or you something else. You're not going to go to the police and say, Hey, this guy sold me bad meth. Right. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, no, I would think not. (laughs) Right. I mean, mean, maybe you would, if you're doing meth, I don't know, but I don't know, Aaron, do you have anything else? Cassie, anything else from you? It's, it's one of our most unanimous agreed upon topics. Yeah, I would I say we get, sure. we, we probably align on this as much as we align on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would be really curious, you know, because uh, like we said, we, you know, we sort of live in a little bit of a bubble, but we, you know, we've also tried to do our research on this and, and be critical of our uh, opinions here. But I would be really curious, you know, anyone listening who has really strong feelings about this in the opposite direction, I would love to hear your thoughts and, you know, hear your perspective 
um, and then respond to it. You know, I think that that would be great. So anyone who has that, or, or if you just have questions about this or thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, for sure. If you think the war on drugs is like super working and we're better off because of it, then, you know, we'd love to hear that perspective as well. You know, everybody has their own biases and stuff, but I feel like we did try to be fair and look at the data that exists and um, maybe you have other sources that we don't know about. So hit us up. Cass, anything from you? No, guys, thanks as always for creating a good space for constructive dialogue, fact-based opinions, if that's a possible thing. And honestly, I just feel like I learned a lot and it's it's always awkward to feel like you can't talk about something because it's too complicated and you don't know enough, but you guys always make me feel like I can talk about things and I can learn and listen and share my opinion. And those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. So I hope other people listening feel the same. Thanks, Cass. Yeah, thank you. I have to say when uh, Zach mentioned Dreamland, the book, uh, the biggest smile came on Cassie's face was a little bit of a giggle. And I just have to imagine that this is a book that has been talked about over and over again in the household over there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, I... Not just our household. Pretty much any household I go to, whenever this topic comes up, I'm like, oh, you should read this book by Sam Kiana. It's called Dreamland. It talks about, like, I've got the pitch down. Like, I can tell you my <laughs> job. I can tell you this book. And I can tell you um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Like, those are, my, those are my, my go-tos. Nice. I really enjoyed today's conversation. I thought it was interesting. It wasn't something that we've talked about before either, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought we'd both be... Oh, similar on this one you know if if this podcast got you high and you really were feeling the vibes um you know we really would love <laughs> for you to rate and review us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to we are you know episode three we're stoked to be doing this i'm personally having so much fun i'm learning a lot every week i'm coming in challenging my own beliefs um either to say they hold up or maybe i'm super wrong and i i, I will admit that if i am and um, I'm, I'm loving this. So thanks Me so too. much for, for listening. And yeah, send us in your questions, whatever you need to do, and uh, we'll get back to you. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 